So now what? Ramdas is off at a meditation course and I'm in limbo in India. Well, not really, because I'm with my girlfriend's Indian family. They decide I need to go on a road trip, see rural South India, and in the process, meet some holy people. Off we go, and our first stop is the famous miracle saint, Sai Baba. Unfortunately, though, I decided I wanted to drive, and suddenly I'm being bombarded by one close miss after another— Cows and bullock carts, pigs running from feral dogs, and people, people stacked everywhere, and I'm driving on the wrong side of the road, at least for me. Finally, after eight harrowing hours, we arrive at my first ashram. There was a huge, beautifully painted live elephant that greeted us, spectacular creature. We were told to line up for meeting the saint. As soon as I saw him, I thought, wow! Jimi Hendrix. He had an amazing afro. He walked down the row of people, occasionally stopping to hand out gifts of sacred ash, which he magically produced with a wave of his hand. And I understood later, sometimes he'd produced various items like pendants and charms. Pretty trippy, but at the same time, I did not feel a thing. Nothing. No vibe. Disappointment. But... After another day of traveling through intense, choked towns, reeking of a combination of toxic waste and the perfume of flowers and incense, we arrived in Pondicherry, a French colony seaside town from the 18th century, very exotic and very enchanting, and the home of another saint, Sri Aurobindo, and his sidekick, called simply Mother. And so it was here that my spiritual story really began. So when it came time for us to leave for Japan, I didn't really want to go because this was the first guy that was the spark of the light that I was looking for. But it seemed absurd that I would come, what, 6,000 miles or something like that. And uh, on this journey to find a uh, 23-year-old guy from Laguna Beach. I mean, it just, you know, it, it was very hard just from a... a uh, altering one's expectations. And so I got to this choice point of going on with David first class, the rest of the, our survey of the Eastern Oriental mind, the Oriental mind survey, uh, or going off with this tall fellow who was going to go on a religious pilgrimage in India, back into India. Well, I chose to go with him. Well, that was quite a drastic experience for me. I've always had kind of a soft life. And I suddenly found myself walking out of Calcutta barefoot. He had given away all of my stuff. <laughs> he had taken over all of my money. Most of it he had given away already. I had a, a shoulder bag and a little Tibetan drum. And my feet were all blistered. Previously, I had been in the Land Rover where we had a big suitcase full of entraviaform and oreomycin and all of these nice things. And now my shoulder bag had a tube of Johnson first aid cream and two band-aids. That was my whole equipment. And previously we were drinking bottled this and going to American style restaurants. And, and now I was eating from street vendors. And uh, so the dysentery was quite extraordinary. In which case he would say to me, well, a fast would be good. Right? I mean, he was compassionate, but there was no pity. <laughs> no pity. He wasn't climbing into the Western. Oh, you. Oh, oh. You know what? 
Here, lie down. Blisters? Well, we'll walk slower. <laughs> That's quite a thing for him to walk, because the streets, you see, because cows are sacred, the cows leave their dung, and before they're picked up and made into fuel, they're hanging around, and then all these people are chewing pond in India and spitting the pond juice, and I had come out of, you know, excessively good toilet training. <laughs> and to walk, I was so exhausted from the end of the day of having to see where I was walking. And his big feet were just padding along like a, like a camel, you know, and he was looking every other way. And he was always stepping around all this stuff. And I could never figure it out, you know. <laughs> Now, um, as we got out of the big cities, in the big cities, you know, people look at you like, what kind of a nut are you? Barefoot in a cloth. We know you're a Westerner, you know, like, who are you kidding? But as you get out in the villages, it's much purer in India, and they still respect the spiritual endeavor. And the people would call, hey, Babaji, which is uh, a, uh, Baba, Baba is the, means grandfather. It also means holy man. It's usually given to Vaishnavite, Vaishnavites, which is the white cloth. And um, Babaji is sort of the, uh, the uh, affectionate title. In Yiddish, it would be Babala. It's that same thing. And so they call Babaji, and I would always be embarrassed, you know, because I wasn't a holy man. I was just wearing a white cloth. I was a Western intellectual, old, overage hippie, you know, uh, looking to see what was going on in India. That's who I was in my head, you know, in my fixed model of myself. And we got to these caves at Baneshwar. We had gone to the Ramakrishna mission, which had not been a very spiritual experience, unfortunately, although the Ganga was very beautiful, quite fine. We had gone to the Sun Temple at Konarak, which all, were all the which was the use of sexual tantra and very high temple, very extraordinarily beautiful. So we got to these caves at Banishwa, these Buddhist caves in the rock, beautifully cut in the rock, almost by hand, very soft inside, little caves, maybe 30 or 40 of them. And it was empty now. And we thought, well, you know, we had come walking this long way. We would meditate in these caves for maybe an hour or so. And so I found a little cave way up on a ledge, and I went inside there, and I sat down, and it was a warm afternoon, and I closed my eyes, and I sort of went off into a reverie, I guess you'd call it. Felt very calm, eyes closed, and I opened my eyes about 20 minutes later, and I noticed there was only the light from the door, that there was a pile right over by the door, and I assumed this pile was a pile of stones that when I was, since I came in from the bright light, I was not dark adapted, I must have stepped over and not seen but I looked forward and they were a pile of coins. See, religious pilgrims had passed and they had seen this sadhu meditating. And because it is the responsibility of the grusta or the householder in India to support the holy men, they had left this money for me. And that really shook me up. So I talked to Bhagwan Das about it, the friend I was with, and we decided to give it away to a beggar but I kept one paisa because it was the first time that I found that it paid to be a holy man. <laughs> and there was that much profaneness in me that I thought that you appreciate that. At the same time, because it was too embarrassing to seriously consider myself a holy man. 
because my Western mind wouldn't give in that much. I mean, I know what the, what kind of a hype religion is. You know, you're not going to catch me and coming on like one of those guys. See, that was my feeling. And Bhagwan Das said, look, he said, when people reverence you because of the role you're in, they are doing it and it's helping their spiritual work to do this. And the way you can handle it, he says, the way I handle it is I reverence them back. Uh, because you're a holy man, you don't bow like they come out and they touch your feet. People run out from shops to touch your feet as you walk by. And you don't do that to them because you're in your role. But in your heart, you touch their feet. You reverence them. And he said, then you're offering them the blessing that they've come to receive. And it's one, you know, that which is pure in you offering to them. Okay, that was fair enough. I was willing to do that. Now, all along this journey, this fellow, this strange Westerner, is slowly taking me over my training. And my, my feeling during this period is as if I am a newborn baby. That's all I can describe it as. He's buying the food. He arranges for our sleeping things. He tells me when to get up. He tells me where we're going to go. He tells me where to sit, when to stand, how to go to the bathroom. He teaches me how to go to the bathroom like a Hindi. He tells me how to eat with my hand, you know, left hand for that and right hand for that. And, you know, don't mix them up, but you'll lose a hand and you put it in the communal pot, wrong hand. And, uh, and most interestingly, and he's teaching me about my body and I'm losing weight and I've got racked with dysentery and my bones. All, we're sleeping on wooden tables everywhere see? because he's a religious, he's a holy man. So he doesn't go to hotels. He doesn't go into restaurants. So you sleep where you sleep on the ground or you sleep in a wooden, you know. So all my hip bones are black and blue and, you know, it's really painful. Very, very painful. But besides the body thing that's happening, he's working with my thought process. So I'll say to him something like, um, how long do you think we're going to be on the road? <laughs> <laughs> and he'll say, don't worry about the future. Just live now. So we'd be silent for a while, sitting in our, on our boards, our wooden tables, and I'd say to him, Gee, uh, this sure is strange in relation to the past. You know, when I used to, he'd say, don't think about the past. Just be here now. Oh, man, my whole game, as you can see, I'm telling you about the past now. I mean, my whole lecturing routine, my whole social identity is either connected with the future or the past. You know, I'm just passing through the present. <laughs> Time is the thing. I very important. Where are we going to go with the psychedelics in the future? Mm -hmm. And all the interesting experiences I had in the past. And he didn't want to hear any of the interesting experiences. I mean, I was one of the most interesting people alive, and he didn't want to know it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd say to him, gee, I feel lousy. And he'd say, he'd say, think of feelings like waves in the ocean and watch them recede into the distance. So I take that lousy feeling and I make it into a wave and I push it off into the distance. And I'd say, boy, that makes me feel better. And he'd say, feelings are like waves. Take the feeling and make it into a wave and let it recede in the distance. I see the positive ones had to go too. 
And then I had nothing to talk about, so then I was silent, you see. So there we were, just sitting together, you know. And uh, he taught me how to work with a mala, do mantra. He taught me to sing bhajan. He said, fill your mind with good things, you know, praises of God, which I thought was a big joke, but okay, if that's the trip, I'll do it. Adaptive fellow. All right, we have a variety more experiences, which I won't belabor and fill you full of at this point, since they're more of the same, pretty much. And then, um, every place we go, there's somebody groovy to receive us, because he has many friends everywhere, and they all love him. That's pretty clear. And he's also, because he's an initiate of many sects, everybody knows him from something or other, and they're all like, there's some spiritual link with everybody we're meeting. So the situation arrives that I have my visa to extend, which I'm going to do for a couple of more months and then go on to Japan. <laughs> so I go to Delhi with him to do this, and I get back into my horn rim glasses and my pants and jacket because I can function with the uh, bureaucracy as, you know, Dr. Albert, collector of musical instruments for the University of New Mexico, uh, the Museum of New Mexico, and I had letters of credentials and stuff like that. While I couldn't really cut it going in as a holy man to ask for a visa extension. And I got that. And then he had a, an annual visa to take care of. And his papers were in a city, oh, some way from Delhi. And we went there by bus. And it turned out that he was going to have some difficulty, which is not unusual. <laughs> Those of you that have dealt with the structure, the government structure in India. It's just, it's very, very loving. The Indians are beautiful, beautiful, wonderful people. It's just that they don't live in time the way we do. <laughs> See, clues everywhere. Everywhere there's clues, but who sees them? These poor, unfortunate Indians, they haven't yet learned to live in time. We'll teach them. So... Bhagwan does says to me, well, he says, I'm having trouble. I got to go see my guru. Now, this is the first time that he's mentioned his, that he even has a guru to me. I can't, I figure, since we've been thinking about Buddhism and all, and the whole Hindu trip seems so like all those pictures of the pantheon they had. The colors were kind of gaudy, and the whole thing was a little too emotional for me. You know, the whole Hindu trip was too emotional, and the Buddhist thing was nice and pure and clean and so I figured it must be a Buddhist lama or something like that. He didn't, I didn't know. He didn't say. And he says, we better go borrow the Land Rover, which was still in India, which the sculptor had, to go up into the mountains. It's about 100 miles, and we're going to have to do it fast. And I didn't want to borrow that Land Rover because it's like the most expensive vehicle in India. And it's, uh, 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 it puts you inside a big Western box, you know. And I was just enjoying getting out into India. I had just gotten over my panic of the pan juice and the droppings and, you know, and the whole of eating from the vendors. And I didn't want to go back into that big box again. It was like um, felt bad. So I was a little uptight about that. But he said we'd do it anyway. So the night before we left the city, we were staying at this very palatial place of somebody who was following him around trying to get his blessing. I had to go to the bathroom during the night, and I went outside. Stars were all out. And I looked up at the stars, and I was thinking about my mother. Now, the previous January, my mother had died. This was now October. 
and she had died of a blood condition at the Peter Ben Brigham Hospital in Boston. She had, the blood condition was in her and not in the hospital. She had died of spleen. And I was sitting, standing out there, not thinking about how she died, but I was just thinking of her. I felt very close to her at that moment. It was like you get out in the universe and you feel close to things that you are spiritually linked to. And I thought about mother now in time and, you know, and so on. Because I had taken LSD to go to her funeral, see, so I had not gotten hung up in the fact that we were burying mother. And so I felt just as close to mother as I'd ever felt to her. And so therefore it was not unnatural that I would think of her. Then I went back to bed and the next day we went and we got the Land Rover and we went off to the mountains and we came to this little temple by the side of the road and people surrounded the car as they do everywhere. In India, it's what's called instant crowd. Every time you stop, you can stop in the desolate wastelands and within 10 seconds, there's 200 people. You don't know where, you know, it's just unbelievable how many people are in all smiling and loving and warm and looking and curious and, and no paranoia. I mean, they're really there. They're really, you know, we aren't, but they are. They're infringing on our privacy. <laughs> that concept doesn't exist in India. So we got out of the car at the temple and Bhagwan Das asked, where's the guru? And they said, the guru is up on the hills, up on that hill over there, around the hill. And Bhagwan Das goes off at a lope, but all the way up into the hills, tears are streaming down his cheeks. And I know that we're getting close to something very powerful, but I don't know what it is. And I'm very bugged about the car and I'm sulking in the corner. And, you know, I've been smoking too much hashish. So I had stopped a few days before, but I was having the, the, the down effect one has after having smoked for a long time. We rush up the hill. I'm rushing behind him, trying to keep up with him, and I'm being ignored by everybody, and, and I'm just in terrible shape, really, stumbling up this path. And we come out into this field, beautiful sunny day, overlooking a valley, and there's an old man sitting there with a blanket wrapped around him. Around him are about, oh, eight or probably eight to ten Hindu people sitting there. And we rush over and Bhagwan Das does Danda Pranam, the full Pranam out flat on his stomach before this man. And he's crying and the man's patting him on the head and it's some kind of joyous reunion. And I'm standing by, you know, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to touch this guy's feet or, you know, I don't know what to do. I've never seen a guru before. Thus far, all I had met in India were pundits. I met many wise men, many men who knew the Upanishads and who quoted Ramakrishna and told me about Ramana Maharshi, but I didn't meet Ramana Maharshi and I didn't meet Ramakrishna or their spirits and I didn't meet anybody like him. So I had never met one of these real ones. And I assumed if he was crying this much, it must be somebody. But I was too angry to even care, to tell you the truth. And after a few minutes, this man looked up and he looked at me. He smiled and he said in Hindi to the to Bhagwan Das, have you a picture of me? Bhagwan Das says, yes. He says, give it to him. Bhagwan Das said, all right, I will. Then he looked at me, he says, you came in a big automobile? I said, yeah. You'll give it to me? <laughs> well, that really blew my mind. I mean, you know. <laughs> 
I wished I could have, but you know. So I said, "Well, it's not mine to not mine to give," and you know, you get me one like it. So I thought, "My God, I just got here and he's hustling me." I mean, what kind of a thing is this? You know, what have I done to deserve this? Am I that bad a person that I got to be subjected? You know, and I was boy, was I self pitying and paranoid. All the time he's laughing, he's laughing, he's putting me on, but I don't know then. Costs a lot of money, he says. You make a lot of money in the United States? <laughs> so I used to. You'll get me a car like that? It rides nice, huh? <laughs> Just coming on to me, something fierce, right? Okay. And I'm really angry, but I'm suppressing it and answering pleasantly, and everybody's smiling at me, and I'm smiling at everybody. Then he says, uh, take them for food. And he, they take us to a room and they give us a big feast. These beautiful sadhus bring us food, the food that the women bring to the guru each day as an offering. And we eat. And then a few minutes later, Bhagwan Das and I are together all the time. And he's the only one I've come with. And this is way up in the remote mountains. There's no electricity up here, nothing going, you know, very remote. Call back to the guru and go back to him. And he says to me, he looks directly at me, right in my eyes, and he said, you were out under the stars last night. Acha, you were thinking about your mother. Acha. Lean back, and then he said, uh, she died last year. Acha. Um, she got very big in the stomach before she died. She died of spleen. He didn't ask. He said she died of spleen. Well, the only way I can describe what experience I had at that moment, and he looked at me with a twinkle at that point. Now, the only way I can describe what happened to me at that moment is to compare my rational mind to a computer that has been fed an insoluble problem. <laughs> that the computer runs through all of the alternative resolutions of this problem that are in the storage units and it runs off each of them in sequence you know and I thought well does he have a telephone did Bhag was Bhagwan Das away from me for a moment Bhagwan Das doesn't even know my mother's dead how is he gonna because he wasn't interested in my past he doesn't know that I've never said to you know does was he reading my mind was I thinking about it at this moment what would that mean you know, and I went through, but I wasn't even thinking about it. I had even forgotten what she died of. I mean, the spleen, I hadn't even remembered the term of the organ. So the computer went and went and went. And then as computers do, when it finishes its uh, analysis through the storage unit, a little red light goes on and a bell rings and it stops. <laughs> and that is literally what happened to my rational mind at that point. I realized I'd just been overwhelmed. I mean, I, ego, Richard Alpert, had just been beaten. You know, there was nowhere to hide. This was, I wasn't high, so I couldn't say this was a drug hallucination. There was a guy doing this thing right to me right then, right, through my gross senses. And at that moment, when that computer stopped, it was like a very severe pain in my heart. It was like a really wrenching feeling. And I started to cry. I wasn't crying because I was sad, and I wasn't crying because I was happy. 
The closest way I could describe it maybe is I was crying because I was home. I mean, because, yeah, right. Wow. That kind of feeling. Like I didn't have to do it anymore. It all was all okay. But I kept crying and crying and crying and they carted me off to another temple to rest for the night. Now I had no trouble at all touching his feet, you know, whoever he was. Well, that night in the temple, I was very confused and I would cry a lot and I didn't, I just was confused. I mean, that was just my state was confusion. But I really felt like I had arrived somewhere. I mean, I felt this feeling that this man was, was, he, he knew what was inside of me completely. I just understood that he was part of me. I felt completely safe. And then the LSD went across my mind and I thought, gee, you know, it's interesting. I've been going around India giving LSD to all these people, asking them what they think, and they all have egos. Here's a guy, you know, he's clearly, I don't feel any ego in this guy. I mean, he feels absolutely pure. I'll ask him what LSD is. He'll know. My Western mind doing its, you know, I'm a scientist. I'm doing my thing. <laughs> Next morning, message arrives. We're to go to the guru right away. We're taken to the guru. I go to see him. He looks at me, he says, have you a question? <laughs> That's like you walk up in front of the sun and you're completely luxuriating in the warmth of these rays. You're completely fulfilled. You're so satisfied. There's nothing that you want in life but just to stay at that moment. If, that's, if you could call it a desire even, because you're even beyond that. You're just feeling that good. And he says, do you want, is there something you want? Well, there's nothing I want. I said, no, I don't, I got nothing to ask you. <laughs> you know, I'm happy. It's all right. I just want to be near you. He says, where's the medicine? <laughs> so I said, uh, what medicine? So he said, don't you have medicine that gives cities, meaning powers? Well, when it was translated for me, I didn't know the word cities at that time. It was translated as powers. And I thought here was an old man who must be getting weak and he wanted vitamins. So I said, no, I don't have anything. I don't have any vitamins. I wish I did, but I'm sorry I don't. So somebody says, no, he means the LSD. They said, LSD? Ah, chai, chai, chai. Gotcha. Tika, 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 LSD. So I went to the car and I brought the bottle of LSD back. He held out his hand and I poured, no, I held out my hand. I poured all this stuff into my hand and I had in there LSD and a little STP and a few tranquilizers and a couple of sleeping pills and a, a little of this and a little of that, you know, my, as, as I was prone to do in those days. And I told him what each thing was and then I put it all back in the bottle and then he held out his hand. So I poured out one LSD pill. These are what are called in the underground world, white lightning. They are 300 micrograms of quite pure LSD. He looked at it and, come on, come on. So I poured a second one. That's now 600 micrograms. Come on, come on, come on. Put a third one, that's 900 micrograms. Well, now 900 micrograms is, for a man in his 70s, is, you know, a, 
<laughs> it's nothing I would have been a party to, I'll tell you that much. But he looked at it, smiled, threw it in his mouth, and I saw it go down. I saw, his, I saw him swallow it. So the scientist in me thought, well, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> and I smiled, he smiled, and everybody smiled, and I, you know... I didn't understand. I was still confused. I stayed around all that day. And, of course, you know the conclusion of the story, that nothing whatsoever happened to him. As I later understood, what he was doing was mirroring my desire about the drugs, just as he was mirroring my anger and a tightness about the car the day before. He's just a perfect mirror. He isn't anybody at all. He's nobody at all. The week before, an old sadhu had come by who takes arsenic in little doses. Arsenic is a uh, is a, uh, a uh, an aid to bhajan, to doing spiritual uh, devotional bhakti yoga. And uh, many uh, of the of the traveling sadhus use arsenic. And he had about a year's supply, which would be like a lethal dose for about ten men. And the guru apparently had said, I was the week before, so I did not see this, but he said, you know, where's the arsenic? He took it and he ate the whole thing. And everybody cried and wailed and don't leave us. Because see, it doesn't matter to him, you know, he's not caught in his body, but everybody else is. And so all the devotees were all uptight that he was going to leave them. And of course, nothing happened. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.